From beginning to end, the Bible has 66 books in it. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the number. There are 66 books in the Bible. Now, most people believe that the Old Testament was written by predominantly one or two people and the New Testament was written by one or two people. But as scholars have gone through the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, what they have discovered is that there are actually 40 authors, 40 different men that wrote the entire Bible. Now still, even within that breakdown, there is one person that wrote more books of the Old Testament than anybody else, and one person that wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody else. In the Old Testament, that person is Moses. He is credited with writing six books, six of the books. The first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. By the way, if you were a little Jewish boy during the days of Jesus, in order to graduate from school, you had to memorize every word of those five books. That's what school was. In order to graduate, every word of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a big task. It really was. Now, nobody... Nobody says that Moses was not the author of those books. Everybody accepts that. But there is a sixth book of the Old Testament that he has also been credited with the authorship of. Anybody know what that is? It's the book of Job. A lot of people believe that Job is the oldest book of the Bible. They believe that it predates Genesis. It predates the time of Moses beyond the shadow of any doubt. So it makes sense that Moses would be the one to record that book. Now, it makes sense because nobody knew what had happened prior to the events of creation until Moses had written those things down. It had been passed down through oral tradition, but until that had been written down, it would have required somebody like him to receive that same revelation. Now, spiritually, we know that the Holy Spirit has given all of the words of the Bible. We know that God is the author. The book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture comes from the mouth of God. He is the author of it. But it's people like Moses that actually put pen to paper and put it in the form that we have it today. Within the New Testament, there's another man that is credited with the bulk of the authorship of it. He has, in fact, written at least 13 books of the New Testament and possibly 14. His name is Paul. We refer to him as the Apostle Paul. Now, there are other authors of the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can go on through. Luke wrote the book of Acts as well, and, and on and on and on this goes. But Paul wrote at least two-thirds of the New Testament. Thirteen books, possibly fourteen. Beginning in the book of Romans, you have Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. There are the thirteen books that we know the Apostle Paul wrote. Anybody know what the fourteenth book might be? book of Hebrews. There's a lot of debate over that, a lot of argument over who the author might be. Personally, I don't believe it was the Apostle Paul, but a lot of people do. It's nothing to argue about, nothing to divide over, but there are a number of people that believe he wrote that book as well. I want you to imagine for just a minute that there is a 67th book of the Bible. You have been tasked by God to write that book. He came to you and said, I want you to be the person to do that. And then God tells you that he will give you all of the words except the first two verses. Those are yours to come up with. And in those two verses, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to introduce yourself, and then he wants you to declare who you're writing to, who you would be sending this book to. How would you do that? How would you introduce yourself? If you were writing a book of the Bible, how would you introduce yourself? 
And then who would you want to have read it? Think about that for just a second. That's, that's not an easy assignment. How would I introduce myself spiritually? How would I direct a book to a certain group of people, and who would those people be? Well, I did some thinking on that this past week. This is what I came up with. Well, in fact, before I get there, let me help you out in figuring out how you would do this. We'll let the Apostle Paul direct us in this. Go with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is how Paul did this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's how he introduced himself. Now listen to who he's writing to. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's how Paul in the book of Romans answered those two questions. Galatians can help with this as well. Galatians chapter 1 starting in verse 1. Paul an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Book of Ephesians, he does it a little bit differently. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. These are passages in the Bible that we skip over and really we shouldn't. There's a wealth of information in it, a wealth of teaching. This is found now in the book of, of uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. It's a little more personal now. Paul's not just writing to a group of people. He's writing to one individual. In the second letter that he would write to Timothy, he starts it this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dear son. Kind of sounds the same when he writes to Titus. In that book, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. One more, to Philemon. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how would you do it? How would you introduce yourself and who would you direct it to? Like I said, I did some thinking about that. This is what I came up with. I wrote it at the, the end of my Bible on the blank pages that are there. Now, arguably, everyone knows that the book of Revelation says that we're not to add to the Bible or take away from it. And I'm not encouraging that at all. I'm using this as a point of illustration. But in my Bible, I wrote book number 67, verse 1. Phil, a preacher of the gospel I have believed my entire life to those that long to know the truth of Jesus Christ. Here it is one more time. Phil, a preacher of the gospel I have believed my entire life 
to those that long to know the truth of Jesus Christ. I hope you would write something very similar to that. I hope you would declare that you believe beyond the shadow of any doubt that the gospel is truth. I hope you would declare that you have based your life on it. And I hope that you would direct it to people that are seeking. People that want to know the truth that you have accepted. People that want to know the truth that you have adopted and made a part of who you are. All too often when people would think of something like this, they would take a different track. They would write things like this. Fill a sinner saved by grace to those that are just trying to get by. Now there's a smattering of truth in that, and it isn't necessarily a bad introduction, but what it's missing is victory. Yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I have been saved, and I am on a path that God put me on because of the truth of the Bible, because of the truth of His love, because God was willing to let His Son die for me. So we have to communicate the victory We have to let people know that we're not just struggling to make it through life as a Christian, but we have accepted the victory. And if we can declare that, folks, other people will be drawn to it. They will be. So when you introduce your faith, whether you do it passively or aggressively, it is the victory that has to become evident to all, that they might all know that you believe it 100%, that you are sold out, that you have given your life to the Lord. One of the ways that that begins was by understanding what that victory really looks like. We move out of the realm of struggle into victory when we really can acknowledge what God has done for us. For the remainder of this sermon, that's what I want to share with you, what God has done for you. The very first thing is this. He changed your clothes. God changed your clothes. I know that sounds really strange, but follow me through this. I don't believe anybody here would argue with this declaration. Clothes are an expression of who you are. True? Clothes are an expression of who you are. We shop with that in mind. I want it to express certain things. I want it to be a testimony of who I am. These are my tastes. These are my opinions. This is my lifestyle. All those different kinds of things. Clothes are an expression of who you are. Sometimes that can be a little confusing. Gary Lamy, the guy that was up here playing guitar, he was playing nine years ago when Tina and I first came to Libby Christian Church. And I'll be honest with you, every week I came, I was excited to see what Gary was wearing. Not because I think Gary is a style icon or a fashion model that we should be following, but because it was funny. And here's what I mean by that. One week, Gary would be dressed in a pair of black jeans with a pair of cowboy boots and a black vest. He would look very Western. The next week, and I mean it could happen that fast, seven days later, Gary might come to church in a pair of zip-off pants, sandals, and a t-shirt, looking like he was headed to the river. So one week, it looked like he was going horseback riding, and the next week, it looked like he was going fishing. And it would change, in and out. The very next week, he could be western again. The week after that, he's headed back to the river. Now, you do have to understand, during that time, Gary was a guide on the river, so he would actually leave church after second service, and he would head out to the river where he would meet some clients. So it made sense that he was dressed that way, but it still just cracked me up. Finally, after I I got to know Gary pretty well, I told him that I believed he had a multiple personality disorder. (laughs) Gary's a counselor, if you know him, and he thought, what in the world are you talking about? I said, I'm just talking about your clothes, buddy. You look confused. I never know who we're going to get. So he had to fish his way through that. But clothes are an expression of who we are. If you don't believe that, go walk through the, the hallways of the high school. You'll see that it's an expression of who they are. 
today Aeropostale clothes and American Eagle clothes. Big deal. Everybody wants Aeropostale written over everything they have, whether it's a coat or a t-shirt, whatever it might be. One of the fashions that's really funny to me today, and it's, it's among guys, they're buying belts that we got away from 30 years ago, but now they're popular again, big, thick, white belts. They're wearing these belts with a t-shirt, then they take the very front of their t-shirt and they tuck that into their pants. Everything else is hanging out. You know why they do that? Because they want people to see their belt. That's why they do it. And some of these belts don't even hold their pants up. So they yank on the things, they try to get them tight, their pants are still falling down all the time, but they want everybody to know that they're wearing that belt. One of my sons has one of those belts. He sent his mother looking for it. She found out those belts cost $18 at Aeropostale. She didn't buy him one there. He came up to me later, or after first service, and he said, Dad, it's from American Eagle. In first service, I said she found it at George's. He didn't appreciate that. So he wanted me to say that it's from American Eagle. So the record is straight. It's an American Eagle one that costs like eight bucks, not 18. But still he tucks the front of his t-shirt in so people see his belt. I don't get that. Here's another thing that kind of baffles me among men's fashions today. Pants that do not come to your waist. I went to buy a new pair of jeans the other day and every pair that I picked up said sits right below your waist. Why do you want a pair of pants that sits right below your waist? Try to throw your leg over a horse with pants that sit below your waist, you're going to get saddle sores. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but people are wearing these pants that don't fit. I don't get it. I mock my children about the fashions today. It's just kind of one of the things that we laugh about in our home, and we laugh about many things. And then they watch TV shows from the years that Tina and I were growing up, and they in turn mock us. And here's why. Tina and I grew up during the 70s and 80s. We'll work our way backwards. Terry Granger helped me with this. These are the fashions of the 80s. We have no right to make fun of anything. Nothing at all. Ray Brosman and I were talking before first service started. He and I both grew up in homes where our mothers in the 1970s made our clothes. Anybody else fit in that category? Now that was not because mom and dad couldn't afford to go buy clothes. That's because mom thought it was cool. So she made our clothes. Now mine wasn't nearly as bad as Ray's. Ray was actually wearing flower sack shirts. Wow. <laughs> so mine didn't get nearly as bad as his, but I'll tell you this, and, and my mother, God rest her soul, was not a good seamstress. So she would go buy this, this material, and she would buy the pattern, and she would make a shirt, and the shirt never fit right, and it was ugly to boot. And so I had to wear the thing around. I loved it when 1980 came on the scene, and I was able to start buying clothes again. Clothes are an expression of who we are. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Spiritually, your clothes are an expression of who you are. And when you become a Christian, God changes your clothes. If you don't believe me, go with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you've been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Your clothes have been changed. Now you might think to yourself, I, I still don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to really deal with that kind of a concept. Well, let me show you. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is not an easy book to find, so the best way to do it is to go to your table of contents, find out where Ezekiel's at and turn there. The 16th chapter of Ezekiel. While we were in Hawaii, I'd taken a lot of different things with me to read. I, I do all the time, read all the time. 
And one of the things that I had decided I wanted to do was change up my devotional life while we were there. And I just wanted to read through the book of Ezekiel. So I got up before everybody else in the morning, went out, sat on the balcony, watched the sun come up, and read through the book of Ezekiel. And that's where I discovered this little passage. We're in the the 16th chapter, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Now, up at the beginning of this chapter in my Bible, it says an allegory of unfaithful Jerusalem. An allegory is a story used for the point of illustration. So this is a point of illustration, and God's using Jerusalem to illustrate his individual relationship with people. And so if you follow that illustration out, that allegory, here's what God is saying. Before God, you had nothing. Before God, your life was headed nowhere. Before God, you did not understand what love was. You couldn't. You were despised, thrown to the curb. But in God, that all changes. So these first five verses, it's an illustration of what your life is like if you do not have a walk with the Lord. But watch what happens. This is verse 6. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You who were naked and bare. God passed by. He found you when you had been kicked to the curb, when there was no hope, when you were not headed anyplace. God passed by. It works this way 95% of the time. God passes by and he sees you there and he sticks his hand down into that pit. And if you grab hold of it, he pulls you up. He begins to change your circumstances He begins to turn things around for you. When God passes by that first time, he's dealing with the situations of your life, meeting you exactly where you're at. I believe that truly 95% of the time, that's exactly the way it works. But listen to what happens after that. Now we're in verse 8. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. The second time God passes by, he has watched you grow up. He has watched you mature. He has watched you change. And he says, now you're ready. Now it's time. The second time God passes by, he covers you with his garment and begins to change your clothes, changes your attitude, changes your countenance, changes everything about you. Verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. When God changes your clothes, that's what it looks like. You become beautiful. 
and it becomes evident to everybody your fame spreads. Now, my favorite verse in all of that is verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. It is a beautiful picture of baptism. If you want to know more about that in the New Testament, go and read Romans chapter 6. It talks about this very thing, putting on Christ in the waters of baptism, letting your old self disappear and your new self emerge, becoming a new person in Jesus. That's what happens in those waters. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I bathed you with water and the blood disappeared. All the ugliness was swept away. I bathed you with water and I began to change your clothes and your fame spreads. Your reputation as a Christian begins to take root. People notice because your clothes are an expression of who you are. So not only in Christ does he change our clothes, but this is the other thing he does for us. He changes our purpose. He gives us a brand new path. He sends us a a whole new direction. He gives us hope, and he gives us a future. Ted Nugent has been in the the news a lot here lately. I don't know how many of you have been watching this. How many of you have seen what's going on with Ted Nugent this past week? He did an interview for a morning show. The process of that interview... Ted kind of went crazy, and it didn't really explain. If you watched the interview, you couldn't understand what was going on. There was no explanation for it. Later, he would say that he had a kidney stone during the interview, and he had to go get it removed right afterwards. If that's the truth, totally understand what he was talking about. I had a kidney stone and made absolutely no sense myself. So I know how that works. But in the process of the interview, he made this really curious statement, really curious statement. He said, at the end of my life, My name will be in the asset column. The world will be a better place because I was here. That caught my attention. Because I've never heard anybody talk that way that didn't have an understanding of who God was. I have never heard anybody talk that way that had not been invested in the things of the Lord. At the end of my life, my name will be in the asset column. The world will be a better place because I was here. So I decided that I'd do a little studying on Ted Nugent's life and see what I could come up with. So I did an extensive study this past week, which means I went to Wikipedia to see what I could discover. Here's what I got. I printed off 13 pages from the internet about Ted Nugent, his biography. I got two paragraphs into it before I got the answer I was looking for. Theodore Anthony Ted Nugent is an American guitarist, musician, singer, author, and activist from Detroit, Michigan. He gained fame as the lead guitarist of the Amboy Dukes before embarking on a solo career. He is noted for his conservative political views and his defense of hunting and gun ownership rights. Nugent was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, the son of Marion Dorothy and Warren Henry Nugent. He moved to Palatine, Illinois as a teenager and has two brothers, John and Jeffrey. Raised Catholic, Nugent has mentioned his ties with the Christian faith many times during interviews and has stated that he regularly attends church. Two paragraphs in, and I found out that Ted Nugent regularly speaks of his faith. So when he says, at the end of my life, my name will be in the asset column, he understands something, that it takes Christianity to get your arms around. Let me show you why I believe that. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant You know that when you were pagan, somehow or the other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. 
And no one can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now let's stop there for just a second. Right there at the beginning, we find this curious phrase, mute idols. If you have a pen or a pencil with you, you might want to underline that in your Bible. There's a lot of significance to it. Here's what Paul is saying. Idols, false gods, others that would claim to be like God have nothing to say. They have nothing to offer. People that get led astray into following those other gods, those idols, looking for hope and a future and a purpose, will not find it because they have nothing to offer. Now, he is in the midst of a discussion of spiritual gifts. And in the midst of that discussion, what the Apostle Paul wants us to learn is that in Christ, you get a new purpose because God is not silent, because Jesus is not mute. He has something to offer. Here's part of it. Verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them and all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. That last verse is the one you have to grab hold of. In Christ, you have gifts. In Christ, he has miraculously given you certain things that he wants you to put together with everybody else's gifts and edify the body. They're called spiritual gifts. They are your purpose. God says, I've given you this new path, this new purpose, this new direction, and I have given you the gifts to get there. Spiritual gifts. Now, those are not talents that you spend your life developing. Those are gifts given by God. Maybe you've never figured out what yours are. A few weeks from now, we're going to be teaching a, a two-week class on spiritual giftedness. If you don't know what your gifts are, I encourage you to come to that. We will help you identify them. We'll help you figure out how to use them. We'll help you figure out what it means to put them together with everybody else's giftedness that the church might be edified, the body might be raised up because that's what God does for us. He gives us a new purpose. Now, he changes our clothes. He gives us a new purpose and a new path. He does one other thing for us. He changes our future. In your study of the New Testament, one of the things that you will find is that there are two judgment seats, two thrones of judgment. The Bible speaks of both of them. The first is called the judgment seat of the Lamb or the judgment seat of Christ. We find it in the book of 2 Corinthians. Why don't you turn there with me so you can see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look specifically at verse 10. This is what Paul says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ is a Christian judgment. It is a throne reserved specifically for believers. And here's what happens. I'm of the camp that believes that this takes place the moment you die. You face this judgment. You stand before the Lord and seated next to him at his right hand is Jesus Christ and open before Jesus is what's referred to in the Bible as the Lamb's Book of Life. Contained within the Lamb's Book of Life is the name of every person that has become a Christian. Every person that has given their life to Christ, their name is written in that book. And when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he says, your name's right here. Come on in. 
It's all that matters. There are some people that would tell you that there's another book called the Book of Works that determines the, the amount of your reward in heaven. That does not matter. What matters is that your name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. If it is, the judgment seat of Christ is nothing to fear, nothing at all. But there is a second judgment seat. It's found in the book of Revelation, and it is referred to as the white throne judgment. If you want to turn to that book with me, we're going to look at chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The white throne judgment is a judgment reserved for non-believers, for non-Christians. And it is something to be feared. You can see that even in John's description of it as he looked into heaven. People were running from it. When the Lamb's book of life was opened, if names were not recorded there, and no one at the white throne judgment will have their name recorded in the Lamb's book of life, they were ushered into hell. Eternal punishment. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24 actually describes the fact that there are different levels of punishment in hell. All of that is meted out at this judgment. And the people that stood there and will stand there are on their way to the worst place you could ever imagine. All because their name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. And it gets there by Jesus Christ. He's the one who took care of it. He's the one who put it there. If your name is recorded in that book, folks, that's the victory that everyone should see, that everyone should know. My name is in the Lamb's book of life, and I want everybody else's to be there. Maybe that's the best introduction to book number 67 that there could be. My name, Phil Allspaw, is in the Lamb's book of life, and I want yours to be there too. It doesn't get any better than that. That's simplified. That's the way it ought to be. My name is in the book. Is yours? We have to decide what to do with that. We have to decide what to do with Christ. But once we've made that decision, it becomes our responsibility to live that victory that everybody might see it. We're not just sinners saved by grace. We are people with our name in the book. Our name has been written down by the blood of Jesus Christ and it will not be erased. Amen? learned a song when I was growing up at Westlink Christian Church. A lot of you learned it as well. We learned this from the time we were just little tiny kids. It sounded like this. I'm not going to sing it for you. Heaven knows that would not do it any justice, but I'll just tell you what the, the song said. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Anybody know that song? How many of you know that? Well, there's another verse that goes on. If you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet. Another verse that says, if you're happy and you know it, say Amen. Man, that's great teaching. It really is. That's living the victory. Let me show you how it works. Stand up with me real quick. <clears throat> the word happy can actually be taken out, and we can plug in this term. If you are a Christian and you know it, then you clap your hands, stomp your feet, and say amen. So let me show you how this works. If you're happy and you know it, if you're a happy Christian and you know it, clap your hands. 
Oh, keep going because God deserves a round of applause. Now, if we walked around like that all the time, people would think we were lunatics and they would lock us up. So you have to be kind of careful about clapping everywhere you go, but there is still good teaching in it. I'm applauding God for what he has done for me. This one gets a little bit different. If you did this all the time, people would think you were angry and they would want you locked up as well. But if you're a happy Christian and you know it, stomp your feet. I like that. I really do. Here's the third part of it. If you're happy and you know it, say amen. Amen. Now, when we were little kids growing up in junior worship in Sunday school at Westland Christian Church, Wichita, Kansas, we would just say amen. That wasn't enough for Betsy Billings. She would make us shout amen because it's living the victory. So if you're a happy Christian and you know it, shout amen. 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 See how it works. That's living the victory. Go ahead and take a seat. Sometimes it's not easy. In fact, sometimes it's very difficult. Two weeks ago, when Tina and I were on our way to Hawaii, we had gotten about halfway across the Pacific, and I was doing okay up to that point. By the way, it's not a secret to anybody that's attended here very long at all to know that I despise flying. I absolutely despise the act of flying. I love to be where we're going, but I hate getting there if it involves an airplane. I'd rather drive. If we could have driven to Hawaii, we would have done it. I hate flying that much. We could have taken our canoe, and I'd have been happy. I just hate flying. It is not that I am afraid of flying. It's not that I'm afraid of crashing. Those thoughts never cross my mind. What I hate is the entire act of flying. So as we were on our way there, about halfway across the Pacific, I said something to Tina, and she said, just don't talk to me right now. I'm excited to get there, and you are stealing that from me. That's exactly what she said to me, because I am that miserable. Absolutely that miserable. That misery is attached to the entire experience beginning with the TSA. When you get there and you have to go through security, there's nothing pleasant about that. We stood at Spokane and I watched this new body scanner thing that they have going on and I thought, I cannot believe that they're about to do this to my children. So I walked up to them and said, I have my kids with me and I'm not thrilled about that. They let us get around it. That was the last good moment on the flight. Tina gets stopped every time we go through security. I don't know if they believe that she looks like a domestic terrorist or just what it is. But she gets stopped every time we go through. This time she gets stopped because there's a problem with her carry-on bag. They tell her that the problem is so severe that they're going to have to empty all the contents out. So they do. They take everything out of her carry-on bag. It's laid out there for God and everybody else to see. And then they take their gunpowder cloth and start wiping it down. But there's still a problem with her bag. And they tell her there's still a problem. They've wiped down the entire inside of the bag. She still can't get through security. Finally, they call her over and they say, we have detected the problem, ma'am. And the guy holds up a bullet, just like this. It's a 40 caliber bullet. Now, you have to know this. She borrowed this bag from Deanie Burns. <laughs> At this point, we're fairly positive that he planted the bullet as a joke. We really believe he did. He won't come clean on it, but we think that's what happened. So she's standing here with all of the TSA people watching while the guy behind the counter says, do you want to surrender this and get on with your trip or do you want a really big hassle? And she said, I'll surrender the bullet. So Deanie's bullet is over at the airport in Spokane right now. And I thought, well, that sets the, the stage for everything else that's going to happen. We get to Hawaii and the whole time that we're there, I'm loving the experience, but I'm thinking to myself, we have to fly back and I hate flying. Part of why I hate flying is that they built these seats for children. I am not built like a child. 
It is not comfortable. Tina booked our tickets. When she did, she put me in the corner next to the window, and she thought to herself, if I keep him over there, he's not going to be offensive to anybody else, and we'll all be okay. She agreed to take the seat next to me because 20 years ago, she took a vow to love me for better or for worse, and this is me at my worst. So she agreed to sit next to me. Eli sat, next, or sat in front of me on the way there, refused to do it on the way back because apparently it was bad even sitting in front of me. I grabbed the seat. I'm rocking him around. I'm kicking him. I'm doing all this other stuff, and Tina's just next to me. <laughs> on the way back, the last happy moment I had was in the Honolulu airport. My boys took me to get a massage in one of those chairs. You put a dollar in it, and it gives you a massage. I think they had ulterior motives. They thought, well, that'll keep him happy. So I did the, the little massage thing. That was the last good moment. Then we got on the plane, and the rest of the trip, I was just like this. Please, God, get it over with. Rapture us now. If you have to crash the plane, I don't care. And I'm, I'm sitting back. I'm leaning forward. I'm turning to the side. I'm twisting. I'm trying to get comfortable. I cannot pull it off. Tina had made a conscious decision not to talk to me the entire time that we flew back. From Honolulu to Salt Lake City, she would not talk to me. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't say a word the entire time either. So we just traveled next to each other with me stewing and fretting and her thinking, just keep him quiet. That's all that matters to me. The whole time, I'm telling myself, I am a child of God, and I need to make sure that, that I am living that. We landed in Spokane, and I thought everything was going to be okay. I really did. We went to baggage claim, and everything came through except one bag. It didn't show up. Now, everybody's standing around collecting their bags. We're standing there with them. I'm waiting for the last bag to come, and I'm doing okay at this point. My stress level's still at about 1,000, but I thought I'm going to make it through. Our bag wasn't there. The guy comes and he takes the remaining two bags off of the carousel, doesn't say a word to us. I walked over to him. I said, hey, we're missing a bag. What do we do? I'm telling myself I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I need to just be okay with this. He said, let me see your baggage claim ticket. So I showed it to him. He said, oh yeah, we got word that this one was flown in right from Seattle to here. So it's down at our ticket counter. I thought to myself at that point, couldn't bring it down here. Couldn't have anybody else show up with it. You couldn't send a little announcement. I remember, my stress level is really high, but I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. Everything's going to be okay. So I said to Tina, I want you to go out and you catch the shuttle, and I'm going to go down to the ticket counter, and I'll get the bag. So I walk. Now, if you've been to the Spokane Airport, here's the baggage claim. Nine miles down this way, here's the Alaska Airlines ticket counter. I walked the nine miles down there, and I said, you apparently have our, our bag. It was flown in from Seattle. The lady said, oh, we don't have your bag here. We never have bags here. You're going to have to go back down to baggage claim. We have an office there. Book of James says to consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that the man of God may be complete, not lacking anything. There was no joy in this. I turned and I walked the nine miles back down there. I went to the Alaska Airlines office. It's a glass-enclosed office. Our bag was sitting right in front of it. I pushed on the door. The door was locked. There was a note hanging on the door that said, if the door is locked, go to the ticket counter. Turned around, I had an eight and a half mile walk back down the ticket counter. So I go back down to them, I said, the door's locked. She said, the door's never locked. I said, trust me, door's locked, told me to come here. She said, well, you're gonna have to go back down there. She probably just had to go to the bathroom. Okay. So I turned around, I walked back, I got there. There's our bag right inside the glass door. If I'd had a brick, I would have had our bag. There was no problem at all. Sitting right there. Lady comes up behind me, she sticks her key in the door and she opens it up and she has a big smile on her face. And she says, I just had to go to the bathroom for a few minutes, I'm so sorry. At this point, I've quit reminding myself that I am a believer in Jesus Christ. <laughs> I have quit trying to protect my witness. And I just walked in, and I grabbed my bag, and I turned and I walked out. Now, I didn't say anything to her, but at the time, I was thinking, I don't care that you had to go to the bathroom. That does not impact my world one bit. I, I'm sorry for you, 
but I wanted my bag. So I get the bag, I go out, I call Tina, find out where she's at and so on. I am mortified that that's the way that all played out. Because even passively, even passively, I did not communicate that I was a Christian. At my worst, they would have never known it. Because I was not clapping my hands, I was stomping my feet. (laughs) My face did not show it, and I was not shouting amen. Maybe that happens to you as well. Folks, it's our job to live the victory. All the time. All the time. No matter what. All the time. Last night at church, in an interesting turn of events, there were two people there that had worked for Alaska Airlines. In fact, one of the ladies worked in baggage claim for a number of years, and she believes she knows the person that I offended. She's going to try and get the name for me because I'd love to write her a letter or call her and tell her it had nothing to do with her needing to go to the bathroom. And I don't want to make excuses for it. I was just wrong for the way I approach things. Sometimes that's what we need to do too. Because if we're happy and we know it, if we are a happy Christian, we ought to be clapping our hands, stomping our feet, letting our face show it, and with our mouth communicating it. That is the victory we live. Amen? Why don't you stand with us? If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ, or you'd like to talk to somebody about being baptized, or you'd like to talk to somebody about the church, or pray with somebody, you can do that right now. Just go over to this door. Brian is there. He will meet you and pray with you and pair you up with somebody that will do the same. Let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven, thank you for saving us, for changing our clothes and our purpose, our path, for giving us a hope and a future, for allowing us even to approach death and the thought of judgment seats with no fear because of you. I'm so grateful for that. Would you help us live it and show it with all that we have? In Jesus' name, amen.